Good morning. Really enjoyed some of the songs this morning because they relate so much to Genesis 42. Um, And this series from Genesis chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50. And as I already alluded this morning, we're in chapter 42. I was thinking... This morning, it's been actually, well, I'm not even sure I can count the years uh, since uh, we used to receive a daily newspaper. I thought I would never know anything but a life of a daily newspaper. I really like a daily newspaper. But especially when I came to Visalia, I just, I couldn't get the news I wanted, so I turned to the internet. But anyway, this is not the forum for my, my needs. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that <clears throat> in the newspaper was a daily columnist, uh, an advice columnist. I don't know if you read an advice columnist anymore, but the advice columnist in the newspaper is a columnist that answers mail and returns advice. So you send in a letter saying, I'm going through this, or this happened to me. What do you think? Uh, And the columnist, if they think it's newsworthy, will post it with the answer. And this one, it goes back a few years, but in this particular letter, the reader had consulted a fortune teller. And she was upset by what the fortune teller told her. He told her, I will soon, now now I'm quoting her, "I, I will soon become pregnant and my husband will not live to see the baby. Then the fortune teller said, my father will die within four months. And all this bad news was also very expensive. And so she asked the columnist, can fortune tellers predict what is going to happen? Is it possible that certain people have the power to see ahead? I'm so miserable, I can't eat or sleep. Signed, Scared to Death in Canada. Well, I think that's very interesting, the questions. Are there people who have the power to see into the future? And in this case, if what this lady sees in the future is true and can be trusted, we use it to guide our lives, then in that case, that's very upsetting for this writer, this reader of the columnist who's appealed to her. The columnist replied, and this is why I saved this, that fortune teller, if that fortune teller could see into the future, that fortune teller would be living it up off her winnings at the racetrack and her profits from the stock market. And she ended her reply by saying, now, 
get a good night's sleep. You know, we think we'd like to know the future. It's a blessing, though, that we cannot. But I raise this question. What about the past? It's one thing to wish you knew about the past, uh, about the future. It's another thing to know what happened in the past. If the future is darkened with anxiety and fear because of what happened, the past is by what we know happened. And it's whammy. Because what did happen haunts our present and our future. Put simply, if we did something, regret or experience guilt, consequences lurk. Consequences haunt. Consequences await us. Consequences fill our future. And so what we did actually can be more profound of an impact on our future than what we would like to know about the future. Unless it's, am I going to escape the consequences of what I did? Let's read chapter 42 because chapter 42 is all about the brothers, particularly the ten brothers. And it's all about regret and guilt. It's about running from consequences. And by the way, you just can't run from consequences. Well, you can run, but you can't run far enough. And it's also about the fact that consequences, which are scary enough at first. I mean, if you've ever done something wrong and didn't want to get caught, you know how scary the possibility of the consequences catching up with you can be. But what's weird is the consequences don't fade or get weaker. Sometimes they get stronger, and they never go away. Someone said running from your problems is a race you'll never win. And also, it's the things we run from that hurt us the most. It's the things we run from that hurt us the most. Well, let's read about these brothers and what's going on in the life of Joseph in chapter 42. I'm going to start at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 24. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Two. Now Joseph was governor over the land. 
He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with, with our father. And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are, in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. When, we, when he begged us, we didn't listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. And then he, that is Joseph, turned away from them. He didn't just turn away, he stepped away and he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him right in front of them. 
And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. Of course, he doesn't make these orders known to the brothers. And to give them provisions, extra provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. I've had uh, three big dogs. I've had four or five. These were not dogs that I picked out. These were dogs that my kids picked out. I've had four or five lap dogs. And you know, uh, compared to the big dogs, I prefer the lap dogs. I can step on them, and I don't have to scoop any poop because you can't find it. It's too small. <laughs> and they don't eat much, so they don't cost much. Just something to think about. You know, there's all kinds of freebies when I talk. <laughs> but my first three dogs were like pedigree dogs. Eight, eight, you know, KFC dogs. No, I just did the said that on purpose. AKC or AKA or whatever. Paper dogs. Train dogs. Dogs you train. And I, I, I learned how to train. And I, I spent a considerable amount of my life and time with those three large dogs. The first was a Weimaraner. The second was a Doberman Pinscher. And the third, uh, the third was a champion golden retriever. I love golden retrievers. Actually, I loved all the dogs. The first two were named Baron. Baron. I thought that was fitting for a Weimaraner and a Doberman Pinscher. By the way, I just got to throw this in. The first service didn't get this. I just thought of it. When I was walking Baron to <laughs> the Doberman down the, the, uh, the driveway, I noticed a young mother wheeling her baby in a baby carriage, and I thought, no. I said, heel, sit. And I left plenty of room because I didn't want her to be spooked. You know, some people think Doberman pincers are extremely vicious and dangerous. So uh, as she got closer, I said, say hello, Baron. And she said, hello, Baron. <laughs> that wasn't directed to her. It was directed at the dog. I was trying to put her at ease, you know. In dog training, I learned three things, very, very valuable things. I learned that as a dog trainer, I have to be more disciplined than the animal, and also I have to distinguish between ignorance, accident, and defiance. Accident, ignorance, and defiance. Now, distinguishing accident Ignorance and defiance means nothing unless you teach your dog the word no. Because you can't, if there's no right and wrong, if there's no yes and no, then you can't distinguish an accident, ignorance, or defiance. It's very important, and you won't be surprised at this point, for me to tell you that the first thing I teach a dog is no. I also applied these same principles to children my children. And I have to tell you, children are a lot tougher than dogs. 
But I do distinguish between accident, ignorance, and defiance. And the first thing I taught dogs and the first thing I taught my children was no. Appropriately and developmentally applied, of course. But the point is, is that no is a base default kind of standard. And in the world of a dog, there's nothing more important than the yes and no of its master. So it is for us as Christians in our world. Not the world, the rest of the world, but our world as believers. We who say Jesus is Lord, no and yes are very important to us. And they're a different no and yes than the world uses or employs. And that's important for us to understand. Teach a child to tell herself or himself, no. That's very important. My pastor used to say, if you do not teach your child to say no to himself or herself, then your child will have difficulty saying yes to God. And you know, that's true for adults too. Some of us adults have a much tougher time calling Jesus Lord. Or sometimes we vocalize the words, but living it out, really submitting, is hard. Because maybe our parents were very lax and let us live a life of self-indulgence. No, 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 we don't use no in our household. Just yes, 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 yes. Anything you want to do, yes. So that sounds like fun. We all want nothing but endless yeses in life. Just say yes to me. I want to hear yes. But that's not the way life works. And it spoils us because there's a lot of no's in life. Not everything can be yes. And also, a lot of yeses come back to hurt us, are not healthy for us. There's a lot of things if we're left to do them, can ruin us, spoil us. And listen, if we don't know how to accept no, we'll really have trouble with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If we have trouble with authority, we'll really have trouble with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then all our, all our learning and our time, all the things you listen to me say, which I do ground in the Word, all those things are going to be hard to experience or relate to because doing it requires saying no to yourself. If we start today, it'll get easier and easier. And in fact, I would propose to you that if you, if you tell yourself a little no, that's a way of saying yes to the best. In fact, I want to encourage you. This is, uh, I was given uh, glasses by the eye doctor when I was in the first grade, first to second grade. I was one of the only kids in school with glasses. Um, so my mom got me that first pair of glasses, and she said, put your glasses on the table like, like this. 
Not like this, and definitely not like this. <laughs> Do you know, after all these years, and long after my mom gone to be with the Lord, I wear glasses again. For a long time, I didn't. I had 20-20. Isn't that what you want, 20-20? Yeah, I had 20-20 vision from about fourth grade until 46 years of age. Those were the good old days. <laughs> but I take really good care of my glasses because my mom taught me how to lay my glasses down. I know, it seems silly to bring up something like that. But all these years later, I'm benefiting from that little truth, that, that little yes to life. Do it this way. Do it this way. And your glasses won't get all scratched up. And we, you won't have to pay a whole bunch of extra money to get your glasses replaced. And you'll be able to see through them better. And you'll even be proud that they are clean and not all scuffed and so forth. I know, it's kind of trivial. But I want us to appreciate that some things moms and dads have taught us years ago, we do take naturally. And yet, for some people, it would be a form of denying themselves to do what you do easily. And I want you to understand that if you learn how to say no to yourself, it will get easier. And it won't be such a struggle. And you'll see the benefits and you'll be happy about it. I mean that. Take it from me. I, I'm not a, I get nothing out of telling you lies up here. I'm telling you stuff that I'm happy to tell you because I want you to be happy too. Say no to yourself. It's a yes to something better. All of a person's life can be viewed as a series of choices and consequences. You might have to think about that a little bit. But I mean that. You can think of your entire life in terms of a series, a chain of choices and consequences. Obviously, they become rather complex because other people's choices and consequences intermingle and dovetail and blend into yours. And so it all becomes kind of a dance. But the fact of the matter is, really, life is a series of choices and consequences. And you know what? Listen to this. The wise start with consequences, not choices. I can tell some of you didn't make sense of that. In other words, before they make a choice, they look at the consequences. Many people, when I say choices and consequences, sure, choices, 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 that's what I want. But I'm telling you, the wise start not with choices, but with consequences. And if you think about the consequences of your life, the consequences of your words, the consequences of your actions, it'll change your life. Dare to defy yourself. A little no says yes to the best. Don't think of no as a party pooper. Think of it as a lifesaver. 
Joseph in this family, you recall how dysfunctional this family is. This is really important to remember and appreciate. This is a broken, this is a shattered, this is a, a family that is in shambles. And it's being perpetuated. It's now generational. I know that that's just somebody else's problem, right? But maybe some of us here today know what I'm talking about in their own family, and it's a generational thing, and you've maybe inherited it, and that's bad enough. Maybe, maybe as an inheritor, that legacy is something you've complained about. And I understand that, griped about, grumbled about, maybe even been bitter about, excused yourself because of it. It's even become perhaps a justification. I don't have to be involved, you know. I was born into this. And so you've cut people in your family out of your life to reduce the drama, to back away from the craziness and the chaos. I mean, for you, that... Old adage, you know, the crazy uncle, that's real life. But even though it's been a legacy, sometimes we turn around and we hand it on. We don't, we don't preempt it. We continue it. Well, that's the kind of family we have here. And we're going to see this in this passage. It's what we read about this morning. And what we want to appreciate is Joseph is the only one, listen, Joseph really is the only one who knows how to say no to himself. And he's the wisest. In fact, he's an icon of wisdom. And do you know why he, he didn't start out that way? But do you know why he says no to himself now? Because he was enslaved. And it taught him something. It taught him how to obey. It taught him how to take commands and not take it personally. Because he didn't take it personally. He thrived. He became proficient. They entrusted things, responsibilities to this man who actually was given control because he had no control and he didn't try to exercise control. He operated as an agent of someone above him, someone over him, someone he obeyed. And now even Pharaoh has put everything into Joseph's hands which is a Hebrew or Semitic expression for control. And he's the only one who can do anything. And with all that power, he can snuff his brothers out. If there's bitterness and vengeance, he can employ that power to exact vengeance on his brothers. He can pay them back for the 22 years of suffering. I read the passage a few minutes ago, didn't I? Didn't we read it together? 
You saw all the power. But he uses it benevolently. Why? Because in verse 18, he says something very interesting. He says, I fear God. So what do we learn from Joseph about the God that he fears? What, what do you infer from a God that Joseph obviously fears and obeys when because of that and following that verse, Joseph says, only one of you will stay and the rest of you go home. And then he actually says, you bring relief. This is literal from the... You bring grain to the famine of your homes. He shows mercy. What kind of a potentate shows that kind of compassion, mercy, or even pity on foreigners? Especially foreigners who he accuses as spies. That's real compassion. And then he has the money hidden in their bags. So he supplies them with their request. He threatens to keep them all and only send one home, but he only keeps one and sends them all home so they can all carry that grain, nine instead of one, to the famine in their homes. And what did, what did Jacob say at the beginning to his sons? He says, go and buy grain so that we might live and what? Not die. So the God that Joseph fears, and we understand that because we know it's Joseph and not a foreign potentate, but if we put on the hat of a detective and we said, what can we infer about the, the nature of the God, this pagan or this unbeliever or this polytheist from Egypt believes in, it would be a God who shows mercy on foreigners. A God who considers the plight and difficulties of the poor and shows compassion upon them, even when he's charged them or suspects them of the kinds of actions that would be a threat to the state which he himself represents. Pretty interesting, huh? So I want us to appreciate that if we don't learn to say no like Joseph, then we're going to be plagued by guilt. We're going to be followed by guilt. We're going to be faced with guilt. And we're going to really need forgiveness of guilt. And Joseph is the only one that can provide that for his family. The only one because they can't do it themselves. Look at how they're followed by guilt. You recall they sold Joseph 22 years before. You might have wondered, how did you get that 22 years? Well, he was 30 when he appeared before Pharaoh. Pharaoh called upon him to, to you know, interpret his dreams, right? And then Pharaoh says, whoa, I'm not going to let you get away. I want you to rule. And uh, I'm going to appoint you to do the very things that you are the one who saw coming, that you, that you uh, obviously have the mind of God, the heart of God, the spirit of God, 
Uh, you're close to God. God speaks through you. I'm not going to lose sight of you. I want you near me. So he puts him in charge, and we're told he was 30 years of age, right? Okay. And so now, where are we at? We're in the famine. So that means when he interpreted the dreams, he said that the seven years of plenty would pass before the famine, right? So he was 30, and now he's 37 at least, right? But how far, how deep into the famine are they? Well, they're a couple of years into the famine. The next chapter will tell us that. So that makes Joseph 39. Joseph's 39. That's 22 years since his brothers sold him into slavery. That's 22 years of living with the guilt of your brother. Every time they have a dinner at daddy's house, Daddy brings up the fact that Joseph isn't there. Every time Daddy says that, they look at one another. And this chapter begins with Jacob saying, why are you looking at one another? It's because of the mention of Egypt, I think. That's where Joseph is. They have every reason that he, to believe he's still alive, but he's enslaved down there. I mean, Egypt is not a happy thing to hear about. And so it's most likely that they're looking at one another uneasily, or at least that's what I subscribe to, when he mentions or talks about Egypt. That would be like somebody mentioning rope in a house where someone was recently hanged by a rope. what was in their heart, what they did, the damage they did, those things never leave them. They don't forget it. Look at, in verse 1, they're uneasy about the word Egypt. In verse 13, they're dishonest. People who have guilt that they carry around, they want to keep it secret. They're people who live with secrets and dishonesty and lies. And they multiply lies and dishonesty. And we see it right here in verse 13. They say we're honest men. I don't mind them saying that, but then they turn right around and they lie to the face of Joseph, which they don't know is Joseph, but they, they lie to him and say he is no more. That's a lie. They're easy with that lie. They're so comfortable with it, it just trips right off their lips. Later, in the final verses of this chapter, they're going to they're go home, and on the way home, they stop to rest and feed the animals and water the animals. One of them opens his back and finds that money. Now, not only are they accused of being spies, and are they guilty of what they did to their brother, but now, on top of it, they're freaked out. In fact, they say in verse 28, what has God done to us now? So they're living in this life of uneasiness, and everything that goes wrong, they tie back to their original guilt. It's pretty amazing. And they make confession, as we read in verses 22, 23. 
They make a full confession to one another. They didn't think Joseph could understand a word they were saying. But what was, why did they bring that up? Because they saw themselves being punished in kind like they punished Joseph. And they remembered it so vividly. You see, our memories don't die. They could still see his face. They could still hear and see him pleading. They remembered that they didn't want to pay any attention to Reuben. They didn't want to follow his advice. All of that they remembered, and Reuben remembered it too. And they're haunted by it. You see, this is all incentive for saying no to ourselves. Because what I want us to appreciate, it isn't just like a little white lie. It isn't just a little wrong. We're all going to make wrong, do wrong, etc. But when we get comfortable with wrong, when we get comfortable with that kind of sin, it really destroys our spirit. Call it your soul, whatever you want, and it affects our relationship with God. We only want him when we need him to get us out of a fix. We're not attuned to him at other times. We're not attuned to others. We don't see ourselves as the solution of God to the situation in our home or our situation at school or our friendship or the difficulties between mom and dad or whatever the case may be. You see, we just see ourselves as victims And you know what happens when we get like that? We get so comfortable with that. We we want to do everything right. The gospel, we want all that truth in our head because that tells us you're okay, you're forgiven. You 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 have God's grace, you have God's forgiveness. But... The unconfessed, the undealt with sin, it, it causes us to stand off from the life and influence that we can have because we're burdened. We're wearing shackles on our feet. And Christ wants to just destroy all of that and free us to be the people that he can use in different situations. The church becomes hardened across this country where we're so stuffed with knowledge. We know all the right things. I'm not saying that's bad. No one's, you know, I'm the, one of the most stuffed. But you see, if we just use all that knowledge to protect ourselves to conceal ourselves, to excuse ourselves from responsibility. That's one, of the, that's one of the examples or the symptoms of guilt. Because we may admit our guilt, but we don't accept the responsibility. And unfortunately, a lot of times we become police people. We, we use all that knowledge to see if other people are doing it right. But it allows us to step back and be in a position of judgment. And God speaking to our hearts saying, break that cycle in your family, that brokenness. You step forward. Let me work through you. You have my Holy Spirit. You are my Joseph. Don't excuse yourself. Be my tool to bring healing. Speak my gospel truth and life into this situation. You exhibit it. Do you realize that in this country of ours, 
Christianity, churches are being dismissed, the gospel. And we're afraid that science is part of the problem, you know? Listen, we, we have something in the gospel. Not in our knowledge of the gospel. We have something in the gospel that is mightier than science, that defies science, that defies our culture, and that's joy in the midst of troubles. That's loyalty and family in an an increasingly divisive and divided world. We know real forgiveness, but we've got to start with ourselves and we've got to help others realize that forgiveness is available for them, but a lot of times we don't even give them any hope of it because we're so busy judging them and seeing their sin. And I say to you, Where is the life of the gospel in that kind of living? That's not going to defy any science, any logic, any rationality. People want to see the living gospel. They want to see its power in action. They want to see it transforming life. If Joseph didn't believe that, He would not have used his power to enact it, but he did. Do you realize that the promise of God to Abraham rests in Joseph's ability to preempt the brokenness of this family, to bring healing, to bring hope, to bring togetherness? It rests on him. Because the promise would never have been fulfilled otherwise. And it goes all the way back to Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. He, this preferential treatment that he gives to Benjamin. Benjamin, <laughs> for the guys, you know, followed by guilt. It all was created out of envy They wanted to murder Joseph, get rid of him. Well, Benjamin's now just taken his place. He's somewhere between 27 and 29 at this time. He's not not a little boy. He's not a toddler. Sometimes we say, I'm going to say yes to myself because it's going to bring me happiness. But really, it brings us stuff that we just can't ever get rid of. And it entrenches us in junk that divides us, keeps us apart from the Lord. And so they were followed by guilt. They were faced by guilt. They even confessed to it there. And then in the end, they were forgiven. I think Joseph's already forgiven them, but it's got to be worked out. And here's the room for reconciliation Confession provides. He overhears that. But he had already prepared. He named his boys Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means God made me forget. God is the only one who will make you forget some of the things that haunt you, that you want to forget, and empower you then with his grace and goodness to bring difference to our lives. But what did the boys do? 
Well, in the end of the chapter, they go home and they repeat the lies and they entrench it. But its story's not over yet. But for us, it's a reminder. Defy yourself. Learn to say no. A little no is really a big yes to the best. And God has your best in mind. He's not, he's not on the other side of the world. He's not over the rainbow. He's here right now. Those songs we sang this morning, they engage us in doing this very thing that we're talking about. Living in the moment, trusting in the Lord, accepting, accepting the life that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's got to get from here to hear and blossom and bear fruit in our lives. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close this in prayer. I want to remind you, we're get, leaders are going to be up here if you'd like to pray with us. Pray over what the Lord has been speaking to you or pray on behalf of someone else. Be praying for uh, Evelyn Barrett. Evelyn, I was told Evelyn Barrett is not doing well today, so... Uh, We'll get over to see Evelyn this afternoon, but you keep her in your prayers. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Impress yourself upon us. We invite you to, to make yourself real in new ways that we might trust you, lean on you, say no to ourselves and say yes to you wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And may we realize all the good that you will bring about We praise you for it in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.